Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good evening, everyone. It is Tuesday, April the 12th, 2022. It is currently 6.15 p.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live from Abilene, Texas. Thank you so much for tuning in. Now, I wish I had something very profound that I could say here at the beginning. You know, if you've ever read college papers, they almost always start with a quote, right? Anyone, even in high school, they write a paper, you always start with a quote. Start with some supposedly powerful quote to get everyone's attention. But I don't have a powerful quote. I don't have anything rather, I don't have anything profound. I don't have anything that's, I don't have anything. All I can do is just jump into what we're going to be talking about. And the reason I don't want to start with something that's supposedly profound or a quote or anything like that is because what we're going to be talking about is rather just discouraging, depressing, horrible, sad, but it's a reality that we can't deny. Look, I guess if I'm going to say anything profound, this is not even rather very profound. I'll say this. I'm just going to point out the very obvious. 2,000 years of church history has demonstrated one thing over and over and over and over and over again, that within the church, there is constantly sin, moral failure, disappointment, division, fighting, arguing, backstabbing, gossip, slander, condemning, judgmental, hate, bitterness, envy, jealousy, you name it, it has been inside the church for literally ever. Think about it. think about even Jesus when he he chooses his disciples. What what happened? One completely denies him three times. There's Peter. Judas completely betrays him. Out of 12, two of them greatly, in a sense, there's scandal. There's failure. There is denial. There is betrayal right there, even within those 12. And then you go, you just start reading into the New Testament. Next thing you know, you've got a letter like 1 Corinthians written to a church that's just absolutely in disarray. There is fighting and there's division and there's, they're carnal. They're, they can't even, I mean, they're, they're carnal, they're fleshly, they're ungodly, they're arrogant. They, they're not dealing with anything in a correct way. I mean, we read about, oh, most of the New Testament is written, our letters written to churches where within those churches, there's all kinds of problems. But in spite of that reality of 2,000 years of scandal and sin and failure, in spite of that, Christians still maintain this weird idea that somehow we are more godly and we're better than those horrible people in the world. We, we've got it figured out because there's a theology that is ingrained in the minds of many within the evangelical world that goes something like this. When you became a Christian, you know what I'm getting ready to say because I say it all the time. There's this theology that's just driven into the brains of of Christians that says this, that when you became a Christian, not positionally only, but practically, you became a new creature Old things are put away and all things have become new. The old is gone. Everything is new. And that is said to be true of every person who becomes a Christian, that that's true in some practical way. Well, first, to believe that would mean you believe that the old nature is completely eradicated and no one and no longer has the old nature. Because if everything's become new and the old is gone, well, then that would require the old nature to be gone. You can't have people sitting in the pew with the old nature and then tell everyone, you're a new creature, old things are passed away, all things have become new. If everyone sitting in the pew still has the old nature, it's this really weird teaching that just Christians just accept. And then Christians are told and are taught And it's just, again, an accepted dogma that now you, because you have the Holy Spirit, you have power. You have the ability to overcome sin. Now, we will say that and then almost in the next breath go, but, 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 you can't be perfect. Well, wait a minute. I've got the power of the Holy Spirit to overcome sin, but I can't be perfect? That would seem to indicate there's a limit to said power. So, 
well, what is this? So it's just this idea that as Christians, we're going to be better. We're going to be more godly. We're going to be different. And we, and we, 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 we say that over and over and over. And then whenever ugliness and division and politics and backstabbing and pain and abuse and domestic abuse and, and, and child molestation and, and, and uh, adultery and sin, whenever it happens in the church, everybody's like, Oh, what happened? How did this occur? It occurred because the church is made up of a bunch of sinful people who were saved by grace and their salvation is based off an imputed righteousness, not an infusion of righteousness, which is why the Protestant, the whole reason for the Protestant Reformation is that distinction. But even many who believe in imputed righteousness say, well, I, we're saved by an imputed righteousness, but, 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 we're going to be different here, we're going to be different here, we're going to be, and if we're not different, then you're not saved. And well, then guess what you find? You have to either begin to deny your own sin and how much you really aren't different, or you have to either deny it, or you just have to start pointing the finger at everyone saying that no one is saved. So I guess I'm going, if I'm going to say something profound, I'm just pointing out the obvious problem within the evangelical church. Now, I mention all of that because I'm looking at an article about, well, another horrible scandal. The Hillsong scandal. I don't know where you've been. I haven't reported on it because I have no desire to talk about it. And I'm not going to talk about the scandal. I'm not going to go through all the horrible details and all of the dirt. I have no desire to get into all of that. Because then what happens? Then those who defend it, well, then you have to just get into this never-ending argument. What I want to do is let's look at the Hillsong scandal. We will mention certain aspects of it, but I want to look at lessons learned from the scandal as pointed out by someone else. And then I'm going to, I'm going to probably argue against many of these lessons because I don't believe these are lessons that have ever been learned. And I think that some of these lessons will ignore the lesson that we need to remember. And that is we... Christians are saved by grace alone, by faith alone, because of Christ alone, because of an imputed righteousness. But we still have a sinful nature. We are still sinners and we will continue to sin until our glorification. And if you expect the church ever to be anything other than a place where sinners gather and in that gathering, their sin will be manifest it will be seen and it will be there unless if you continue to live in that denial, then then you're just, I don't know, you're going to become dis- disillusioned and discouraged. But it's because of the bad teaching that no, 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 you're a new creature. Practically. Yes, I'm a new creature positionally, not practically. Practically, I'm still a sinner. All right. Now, I'm not saying that there shouldn't be change. I'm not saying that we don't fight against the flesh, mortify, for, mortify the flesh, and we strive to live godly. I'm just dealing with the reality of what we are. And we always claim this power that we can do it. We've, we did an entire episode about you can do it. And it's like, well, look at Christianity. But we're going to look turn to the Hill, Hillsong scandal. This is an article entitled Eight Lessons Learned from the Hillsong Scandal. Here's what they write. Whether it be a historic denomination, or let me read it again, whether it be a historic denominational church or an independent evangelical church, it's always unfortunate whenever there is a scandal in the church. Now, let's stop right here. They're going to give us eight lessons. You're probably going to get about 50 lessons here because I'm going to be throwing out lesson after lesson after lesson. I've already kind of thrown out one that we have this, we have a faulty theology that basically acts like the church is going to be something other than what it's not. It's a group of sinners together and that sin is going to constantly demonstrate itself because we're still sinners. The old nature is still there. We've got to realize that. This scandal is just another reminder of that truth. But I think they just give away a very important lesson here. Whether it be a historic denominational church or an independent evangelical church, it's always unfortunate when there's a scandal in the church. Here's what happens. Whenever there's a scandal in the church, those who are not part of that denomination are a part of that church structure, will always sit back and go, mm, mm, mm. if they had elders, if they had a 
if they had if they had the Presbyterian view of church government, or if they had this view, they always begin to criticize the church structure and say, see, that structure is wrong. And if you had the right structure, that would have never happened. But you go through any structure. What do you find? You find sin, you find failure, you find compromise, you find cover up, you find abuse, you find rape, you find sexual sin, you find everything. Because no structure can stop the reality of the depravity. Now, I'm not saying one structure may not be better than another. It just I just hate that, oh, if they had this structure, that would fix everything. Because, yeah, church government structures resolve human depravity. Like, do we, do we, I, sometimes I think Christians just forget the reality of what we are. But here we go. I do agree it's always unfortunate when there is scandal. But scandal's always been a part of the church, always will be. Often, when the media reports a Christian scandal, they report on the salacious details, neglecting the many thousands of lives that the power of Jesus Christ has transformed. Now, here we go again. You can see the idea. Okay, there may be scandal, but don't forget the thousands of lives that have been transformed. Now, what do you mean by that? Transformed positionally or transformed practically? Well, there, I'm not denying that there can't be major changes in the way Christians live, but they're still sinners. They're still sinners. This is certainly the case in regarding the public deconstruction of the Hillsong brand. I want you to hear this next statistic. One report says that Hillsong has lost at least half of its American campuses in two weeks. They've lost half of their American campuses in two weeks. This mega ministry, Hillsong, powerful, well-known, global. Well, in America, they've lost half of, as they refer to them, campuses in two weeks. That That's the deconstruction, the the destruction the the falling apart of Hillsong and everything that it was. Whether this number survives is totally up to the response of its leaders, as God says he will lift us if we humble ourselves. Consequently, there are at least eight lessons we can learn from Hillsong. Now, let me stay right here. I've never been a fan of Hillsong, never agreed with their theology, never agreed with their doctrine, nothing, nothing, nothing about Hillsong. Don't like their Hillsong music. Don't like anything about Hillsong. All right. But whenever there's a scandal, it's easy for you who don't agree with their theology. It's people love to do this. They love to do this. Whenever there's a failure, there's a scandal. If we don't like someone, then we say, oh, here's my, punch them. Time to kick them and break them and beat them down. And if we don't like their theology, then we tend to use someone's failure as an opportunity to attack their theology. Let's make it very clear. There's people with every theological walk of life, from charismatic to reformed to amillennial to premillennial to Arminian to Pelagian to Calvinistic, you name it, you name the theology, from Catholic to Protestant, from Greek Orthodox to anything in between, right? You name them. Methodist, you name them. Presbyterian, you name them. Scandal, failure, sin shows up in all different theological streams because no one theological stream fixes the depravity inside the people who hold to that theology. Whatever theology you hold to, it's not the magic silver bullet that fixes the depravity that is inside of you. And I don't like this idea that, oh, oh they failed. Let's attack them. I'll never forget. Absolutely the craziest thing I'd ever witnessed. Rick Warren, his son, committed suicide. That's horrible. That's tragic. That's devastating. What Rick Warren needs right there is to see the love of Christ, to see people saying godly things. But I witnessed Christians attacking Rick Warren. Well, if you were a good parent, and if it's for your garbage theology, that purpose-driven life garbage, and that purpose-driven church stuff, that's, that's basically the reason your son killed himself. Because you have a flawed theology, that's why your son killed himself. They attacked his theology because of his son's suicide. That is evil. That is pure, 
unmitigated evil. You can disagree with someone's theology. You can hate their theology. But when everything falls apart, that's when you're going to come in. It's like, oh, now that they're down, let's run in and kick them really. Oh, you're really big, man. You you got the, the big ministry that's fallen down and they're on their knees, right? They're on their hands and knees in pain. And we come up, oh, boom, I'm going to kick you. I'm going to kick you because now I can, I can, I can make myself, look, my theology is better than your theology. I'm more godly than you. So look, I, I get very, I don't like anything about Hillsong's theology, but I'm not going to use this as an opportunity to come in and try to attack their theology. Now, I, it, there may be things related to their theology that I discuss, but I'm going to make it about the theology and not about Hillsong. I'm going to do my very best here, okay? Because I'm not, I'm not going to mention any of the names of Hillsong. I'm not going to do anything because look, what's happened has happened. It's being reported. It's horrible. It's tragic. It's sad. I hope that there is repentance. I hope there is reconciliation and restoration. And I hope God can be glorified in all of this. All right. I'm just going to look at it from, okay, I tried to do the same thing with anything. Here's the situation. What can we learn from it? Remember when I talked about the rise and fall of Mars Hill? Okay. We can look at this as an opportunity to kick Mark Driscoll, or we can go, what can we learn about it? When I talked about the whole controversy surrounding MacArthur, Grace Community Church, and and the horrible Eileen Gray situation, once again, I said, what can we learn about us? What can we learn about it? Some people wanted to use it as an opportunity to attack Calvinism. Ooh, this is it. Because MacArthur is a Calvinist, this is, it's, it's Calvinism's fault. You're right, you're right. Because in non-Calvinistic churches, there's never problems with domestic abuse and violence. And no, never, never, never. I mean, give me, see, it's just a, what, what, what ungodliness is in us. To see people at their lowest as an opportunity to attack them and then just make everything a philological battle. It's just, it's sad. So, yes, a lot of people, a lot of the world wants to look at the salacious details. We're going to, uh, we're going to just see what lessons they give. All right. There's a lot more lessons we could talk about, but let's go through the eight that they give. Here's number one. Here's number one. I don't know if they have these in, in order of importance, like they start with the most important is number one, or these are just listed randomly. Um, they just say there's at least eight lessons we can learn from Hillsong. They don't, they don't look at this anywhere. That, that, that don't, that don't state why they're ordered, uh, they're listed in the order that they're listed. So we're just going to start with number one. Here we go. And this, this really goes beyond Hillsong. This really just goes to the entire, I'll call it the evangelical industrial complex. I think we can just talk about the whole evangelical industrial complex because I've, I've been speaking against that forever. Here we go. Number one, we cannot build a church upon mega personalities. Or you could say it this way. We cannot build a church based off celebrity personalities or celebrity pastor culture. Now, I am grown extremely tired of everyone condemning celebrity pastors. I am so tired of it because the people who condemn it turn right around and engage in the exact activities that create the celebrity pastors. Now, you know where I'm going to go if you're a longtime listener, and I know I'm going to offend some of you, but I am sick and tired of this. In fact, I think I have an email right now that I just received from some ministry just a couple of hour ago, hours ago that once again... Is, is what I believe creates the celebrity culture. Let me explain. So I'm, I'm going to read what they're going to have to say, but they say we cannot build a church upon mega personalities. Okay. Or celebrity personalities or celebrity. Okay. Let's set aside what they have to say. Let me make it very clear. When you create an industry where famous pastors go stand on a stage, the product they're selling well, it's really themselves, but the claim is that what they're selling, I mean, and even the fact that they, this is the product that they're selling is just evil, that the product they're selling is the preaching of God's word. You've created a problem because you're making them out to be the celebrity gurus that everyone needs. What do I mean by this? You take pastors who have some credibility, some street cred, some street 
fame, right? And just using that terminology, they have some evangelical Christian fame and people love them. You bring them together, you charge people whatever you charge them so that they can get in. Ooh, okay, I got in. In many cases, they're paying to get inside a church so that they can hear people preach God's word. That industry, I call it the conference industry, turns these people into celebrities because you're viewing them as a celebrity because people are paying hundreds of dollars to get in to hear them preach God's word. So what are you paying? To hear God's word preached? Are you paying because they're your celebrity? And then I've watched what happens when that person's done. People run up to get their autograph, to get a selfie with them. I've even seen them to sign their Bible. You're gonna get your Bible signed by a preacher? And, and anytime I, I condemn this, everybody gets mad at me. And they're like, you're, you're just whatever. And then next thing they're paying, they're, next thing they're on their, you know, social media account. Oh, I'm, I'm in California for the Shepherds Conference, or I'm here for this, whatever the conference is. In fact, let me see if I find the email. I think I just got it just a little while ago. There's some conference I think that they were wanting me to register for. And I don't go to these things. It's just, oh, it's just a whole thing. Let's see if I can find it. Um, let's see here. When did I get it? Uh, I get so many, I got 79, I got 79,000, 79,007 emails in my inbox currently. Uh, so let me see if I can find it. Um, let's see here. Let me see. I am getting a lot of, where was it? No. I've got a lot here. Let me see if I can find it. Oh, man, so many emails. So many emails. I wish I remember if I could, if I knew which ministry, if I knew which ministry, I would just uh, type in the name and then I could find it. Yeah, I may have deleted it. I probably just got irritated and deleted it, but it was another conference and they wanted me to register now so I could get a discount. Uh, because I can't remember, I can't remember the price. I was going to read the price to you, but um, yeah. Once again, it's it's another conference where you have to pay money. Now, again, I just it's just hard for me to wrap my, my mind around how no Christians ever understand the problem here. I'm going to pay money to get into a place so I can hear God's word preached. That means the people preaching are obviously different than the re- than all the other preachers because you're paying money to go see they can preach better they're better they're they're some they're on a different level you're immediately creating a, a level that they're better than other preachers because people pay to hear them but you condemn this you don't now look you condemn that everyone gets mad at you but then as soon as something goes wrong scandal failure say a Mark Driscoll Hillsong, it doesn't matter. Guess what, everybody? This celebrity pastor culture has got to stop. This is just such nonsense. And then as soon as they're done condemning whichever pastor failed, then they're like, okay, I'm planning my next trip to the next conference. Wait, you're you're just continuing to keep that situation going, right? Here's what they say. We cannot build a church upon a mega personalities. Many of the Hillsong churches, including New York City, were built upon the mega personalities of their lead pastor, Whenever a church is built upon one person's charisma and influence, it becomes dangerous because its foundation dissipates if that pastor resigns. That's true. That's true. But to me, what is the problem within the evangelical world of creating these mega personalities? What is it that, what is it about Christians that we like, we, okay, I was in the world and I, and I had my celebrities that I loved when I was lost. Then to become a Christian, I need an alternative. I need some Christian celebrities so that I can follow them and be a fanboy of what, what, what is that? You, you can't do that. I mean, there's, there's Christian podcasters that you pay money to get their content. I, I just, Ministry turns into, that's when it turns into a business. Number two, 
So this is the first lesson. We cannot build a church upon mega personalities. I think that that has nothing to do with Hillsong. That's just the evangelical world in general. I like these that kind of go beyond uh, Hillsong, but some of these may be more specific to Hillsong, but I will definitely try to make them about the broader evangelical world and, and not just because I don't want to just focus on Hillsong here. All right, here we go. Number two, the lifestyle of the top leader filters down to the ecosystem of the whole church. All right. Now they talk about one of the pastors of Hillsong and he had to resign because of all of these scandals. All right. Uh, but then that scandal that caused him to resign, well, those there's same allegations and same things that other people on the staff were involved in the exact same kind of behavior. All right. Um, so basically what they, they say is that it, once, think of it this way, that whatever the lifestyle is in the leadership, it filters down to everyone else. Okay, I'm not going to 100% deny that. Here's what I'm going to say. That the entire ecosystem, ecosystem, ecosystem the entire system of the church with everyone involved, Maybe the actions of the leader will filter down and influence everyone else. But let's just remember, everyone in that ecosystem, everyone in that system, everyone there, they're all the same. They're all sinners. All right? So you can say, well, that that person did it and everyone just followed their lead. Okay. Oh, you would hope that people could do more well. Well, the leader does it, so I can do it. Well, the leader does it, I can do it. Hopefully that you would argue that people would like, you know, I, I maybe we, we don't, base, as Christians, I don't base my behavior on what other people do. I think I think each individual has to be held responsible here. It's not just, well, the leader did it, so they did it. And it's the leader's fault. I'm not, look, I'm not denying the influence of a leader, maybe because that you've turned them into a celebrity. But I think the issue is that everyone is a sinner, and that if 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 they feel that others are committing said act and they want to commit said act, then they will. I think this is just another proof of the depravity in everyone, not just the influence of leadership. It's the influence. It's we all, we always want to say, well, that person committed that sin because of that person's influence. We're all sinners. Look, with influence or without influence, we're going to find a way to sin. Now that doesn't excuse someone's negative influence, but I'm just saying it also doesn't excuse someone's behavior. We always want to put it on someone else, but we're all sinners, all right? So they say that uh, the lifestyle of top leaders filter down uh, to the ecosystem of the whole church. You can, you, can, you can have your own thoughts on that one. Number three, we cannot build on a bad foundation. Now, this one is very specific towards Hillsong, but I think its application goes beyond it. So I'm going to read this one word for word, All right? The author writes, I remember when Hillsong Church started in New York City. They had concerts every Sunday night for several months until they built up a critical mass. Then one Sunday evening, they announced they were starting a church the following week during Sunday morning hours and encouraged everyone to attend. I heard that this was basically their, their mode of operation and other cities uh, of the United States and beyond. Consequently, they planted churches based on the strength of their worship band, gathering crowds taken from other smaller feeder churches. This merely transfers growth and does not expand the kingdom of God. All right. So they are accusing them of the way that the foundation they built on was problematic from the start. I think every church can look at themselves in the mirror and go, what, what, what do we build our church on? What, what is our secret sauce to get people in? What is it? What is it? What is it? Look, Hillsong is not the first by no, what not only was it the first it will not be the last of churches building their congregations up because of worship music the, the music the building the, i mean i learned all the way back all the way back in the 1990s 
when I was attending Grace uh, Grace University in Omaha, Nebraska, that this concept of, of building churches, that one of the key concepts was build it and they will come. Build that new building, even if you have to go in de- debt, because if it's a new, fr- uh, new flashy building, people will come. If it's a broken down building, some people will not come simply because it's embarrassing and they don't want to be associated with that. But if it's a nice, beautiful building, Boom, many people will come just because of the building. So people build uh, churches on music, on building, on programs, on activities. There's a host of things people build their church on that are problematic. And sometimes they're built on the celebrity of the pastor. But again, what creates that celebrity? The conference industrial complex where people pay money to see said pastor so they become a celebrity. Once they become a celebrity, anyone in the surrounding area, even if they're going to a little small church, doesn't have the celebrity, doesn't, people will, will ba- abandon those little small churches just like this, boom, and run off to the nice big celebrity pastor because people pay hundreds of dollars to hear that pastor preach. So clearly he preaches better than that pastor in some little small church that nobody's ever heard of. What is the foundation that your church is built on? A person? Activity? Programs? What is it? What is it? Sometimes you look at what's being advertised. You try to look at what, what, what are visitors pointed to? What is promoted? What I tend to say, if someone comes to my church and they ask, and they ask me any questions, I'm basically, look, here's what I have to offer you. Absolutely nothing other than the teaching of God's word. That's it. That's it. We don't have no programs. We know I have no activities. You show up to hear God's word preached. That's what I have to offer you. The end. If you want anything else, you probably need to go find another church. Now, that's not been a very great strategy in building a church, let me tell you. People want, now people will come saying they want that. And then very soon after, they start saying, well, we should do this and we should do, I told you, This is a place about the teaching of God. If you want all of those other things, if we start doing those, then we're just like all the other churches and I have no desire to be like all the other churches. We're trying to be an alternative. We're trying to be, our our quote unquote gimmick is we're not going to be like everyone else. But what is the foundation? I think all of us have probably been guilty of bad foundations. Now, this one, Every local church needs local church governance. Every local church needs local church governance. Now, this is getting into church leadership, church structure. And again, once again, it's always this idea that if we have the right structure in place, we can avoid all of this. Let's see how they they approach this. All right. Now, one of the pastors in Arizona resigned from Hillsong recently because he claimed they do not allow local churches to be autonomous. Now, for this individual, leaving Hillsong was the culmination of several years of doubt about the institution. He objected a few years ago. He said when a global church restructuring disbanded his board of local leaders and put him directly under the authority of the Australia-based global board. So there was a restructuring within Hillsong, right? So your local church is not autonomous. It's built around a denomination or a global denomination, and you're underneath the uh, authority of the Australian-based global board. So you're under a board who's not local. This person's like, no, the church should be autonomous and have leadership within that local church that controls and decides what happens. They go on, this is a gross violation of the biblical model we see in the New Testament. Every local church should be governed by indigenous leaders who understand the context of their city and culture. They're usually the uh, the uh, aptest at giving oversight to the congregation. Now, this gets into a big discussion. Should a local congregation be autonomous or should it account- be accountable to a broader denominational structure. 
In other words, do you need a denominational structure? Do you need an independent church that's autonomous structure? That autonomous structure, should it be congregational-led? Should it be pastor-led? Should it be elder-led? Everyone has their theories. And what I love about it is everyone thinks their theory is right. This is the way church government should be done. And everyone claims that they get it from the New Testament. Everyone. I remember in uh, one of the Bible institutes I went to one Saturday, um, we were there and we had to spend a good portion of the day and we had to all basically make an argument for different church government structures, independent, autonomous local church, uh, pastor led, congregational led, elder, all, and everyone had all their arguments. And when it was all said and done, basically after we were there, you know, from like eight in the morning to like five in the evening, uh, for a break of lunch, for a break for lunch. Basically, that entire day, all I've came to the conclusion is, is no, everyone thinks they're right. Everyone thinks their form of government is right. And it's just argue, 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 argue. Everyone quotes a scripture. Everyone thinks, and you're just like, you know what? And you know what I've seen? Every form of church government that I've ever seen, guess what? You see those churches split. And you say, you need a denominational structure that you're accountable to the denomination. I've heard that all the time. Well, then guess what? As soon as you disagree with the denomination, what do you do? You take your church, you take your ball, and you go home and go somewhere else. Methodists are splitting. Southern Baptists are always fighting. So we need to be a part of a denomination. Why? Because as soon as you disagree with the denomination, you're just going to leave. You only give the denomination the authority as long as you agree with them. As soon as you disagree with them, you walk away. So I've never understood, like, we've got to be a part of denomination because you need to be held accountable. Yeah, until the church decides that they disagree and then they walk away. I mean, you you see it all the time. So um, they think that the lesson learned here is that every church needs to be have a local governance. Okay, well, that's fine, but let me just make it clear. You can have... I've seen every structure in the world. Churches split. I've seen elder rule split, fall completely and utterly apart. I've seen congregational led fall completely apart. Pastor led fall completely apart. Denominational led fall completely apart. Because the issue is that we're all sinners. That's the issue. And that no church government can fix the reality of the sin in the church. The, the focus on the church needs to be more on everyone's spiritual maturity and growth more than the the church government that's placed on us. Number five. So number one, we cannot build a church upon mega personalities. Number two, the lifestyle of the top leader filters down to the ecosystem or the ecosystem. I keep wanting to say ecosystem. The ecosystem of the whole church. We cannot build on a bad foundation. Every local church needs a local church governance. Number five, the brand of a movement can tarnish all churches so branded. Many leaders, and they name another person, uh, resigned because it was too difficult for him to raise a new church with all the scandals distracting from the purpose of preaching the gospel. Whenever a local church connects to a movement and is forced to take its name, it's taking a chance that the brand of said movement will be a positive and not a negative one moving forward. Now, that is true. When you're part of a brand, when you're part of, part of a of a of a whatever you want to call it, a brand, a name. It can be, you can call it a denomination, whatever. When you're a part of it, if something goes wrong, then you're tarnished by it. So if something horribly goes wrong in the Southern Baptist Convention, boom, you're you're tarnished by it. Every priest in the Catholic Church, not would obviously 1,000% reject their theology, but just show how it works. They're tarnished because of all of the scandal uh, and how they handled and the horrible acts that were conducted against children uh, and boys and, and young children and their sexual abuse cases. Well, all of them were tarnished. Well, that's what happens when you're part of a brand. You connect yourself to this brand. At first, it's awesome, right? Whatever it is, oh, this is the growing brand, right? And you can be tempted to go, man, I want to be a part of that brand because that will help me, right? It's easy to, when you see a brand, whatever it is, and you're like, ooh, Let's say it's the Mars Hill brand. If I can get connected to that, then that's going to help me because people are looking for that. So it's easy to fall into that trap. I can't speak for larger churches, but a small church is very easy. Like, oh, I want to be associated with that. Well, once it goes wrong, so maybe we should stop worrying about brands. Maybe. I don't know. Um, A church can have an excellent Sunday presentation, but poor infrastructure. 
Hillsong put on some of the greatest Sunday services in the world, especially of their extraordinary worship. I'm going to stop right here. I think this is this. We need to have a come to Jesus meeting right here. All right. So I need you to stop what you're doing. I find it interesting how people define extraordinary worship, powerful worship, meaningful worship, because typically what it means is a praise band, mood lighting, maybe some smoke. It, it, it's, it's, I don't know if it, is it extraordinary worship or is it an extraordinary presentation that pleases and moves the emotions and the flesh? Uh, so many times people, it was an amazing worship service. And you're like, oh, can I listen to it? Why? And you go watch it. I'm like, okay, it's got all, it's, it's checking all the boxes, right? Great, supposedly great music. It, it's, it's, it's done. It, it's got the uplifting part, but then it's got the somber part. Maybe you have some people singing acapella. It's, it's got the mood lighting, you know, is it an experience or is it worship? I think sometimes we, we confuse ourselves that experience equals worship. Can worship be just as extraordinary, just as powerful with no praise band just a few people, not great singers, maybe not even great great playing of the piano or whatever instrument, and people are just singing to God. Can, can that be just as powerful? It, it just feels like you always have to have, you have to have the song leader. You've got to just, you've got to, you've got to, you've got to do something to create the atmosphere. Like if you don't create the atmosphere, nobody feels like it was extraordinary worship. And to me, I know this is going to be radical. Worship is not just singing. I think the highest part of worship is not the singing. It's the preaching of God's word because we're hearing from God. Right? We're we're listening to God, hopefully with reverence, giving our full attention. That is a part of worship. Sometimes worship is just the singing, the extraordinary worship. And it's always... I, I, they talk about an excellent Sunday presentation. Again, um, Hillsong put on some of the greatest Sunday services in the world, especially because of their extraordinary worship. See, it's extraordinary worship because they have the Hillsong music, the Hillsong worship team. It's extraordinary. Could, could, was it extraordinary worship with three or four Christians in the catacombs? Three or four Christians sitting in a house? Can you get extraordinary worship if you just read a few psalms, didn't even sing them, didn't even chant them? Worship is, it, to me, we always define how great worship is based maybe on a liturgy, on a building, on a music, on an atmosphere. And it's all, we always judge it based off a feeling we get. Maybe, maybe, maybe that's where we get everything wrong. Many people go to church, they want an experience. I'm just going to leave it. You can, you can tell me what you think here. Let's read what they have to say. Hillsong put on some, Hillsong put on some of the greatest Sunday services in the world, especially because of their extraordinary worship. Unfortunately, their presentation often hid the fact that they had poor infrastructure, lacking a healthy biblical based culture among the staff and leadership. Just because a church has a big crowd and exciting service doesn't mean they, uh, they comport with the New Testament pattern for processing and vetting its leaders and staff. Okay. Yeah, that's true that the great presentation can cover up problems in the infrastructure, but I think your writing is the problem in the sense that you're saying that it was extraordinary worship. Based off what? What made it extraordinary worship? You are allowing the presentation to be defined as extraordinary worship, and presentation does not equal extraordinary worship. Number seven, you can have a mega church with a few disciples. 
The bottom line of determining if a church is influential is if they're winning new converts and making them disciples of Christ. A church that is built upon attracting people because of music without biblically-based solid teaching from the pulpit will have difficulty producing genuine disciples of Christ. To be fair, there may be exceptions to this with some substantial biblical preaching in some Hillsong campuses, but I'm referring to the primary way that they plant churches and kept drawing people. Well, I think, look, I'll go back to it again. I say this all the time. I think, look, I listen to a lot of sermons. I listen to a lot of sermons. And so many of the sermons, I don't feel like that they're really designed to get you actually studying the Bible. The sermon is just a part of what, it's just there. It's for you to listen to, right? It's just, we got to have a sermon because that's what churches do. And it's 35 minutes, 40 minutes of a lecture, you listening to someone, typically using every speech technique, eye contact, a joke, you know, a sad story, using everything to try to manipulate the emotions so that you think it was good. But there was no actually digging in, struggling with the text, asking difficult theological questions, maybe leaving without any answers. I, I, it just seems like so much of, I think some churches, the sermon is just what's supposed to be there. And, and when it's just, in other words, the sermon is just supposed to happen. The sermon is not really designed to really engage in meaningful study. Every, people just sit there. I, I was I was seeing a, a I, I guess it was a, maybe it was a photograph or maybe it was a video. It was a church, big church. Everything, everybody looked nice, but I was watching the congregation. So one person was holding a cup of coffee. Nobody, I don't think anybody had an open Bible. Maybe I don't think anyone had a notebook. And even if they had a notebook, the preaching, I think it was video, the preaching I mean, you may have had two or three points written down just because there's two or three points in the sermon, but there was no like really engaging the text. There was no digging in. It was no, it was so shallow and surface that I'm sometimes thinking that, you know, we're, we're making this. In fact, over and over and over, I hear it again. Well, you don't make disciples from the pulpit. That happens in our small groups, which then, yeah, I think there's just a whole problem with the whole discipleship making concept in the church. All right. Number eight. A leader or church should not cater to or focus on celebrity culture. Now, once again, I'm so tired of hearing the complaint about celebrity culture. Yes, the church should not cater or focus on celebrity culture. Well, then stop supporting the conference industrial complex that props men up as being the somehow magisterial authority to preach the Bible, and it only costs you $400, $300, $200 to hear their magisterial wisdom. It's insane that anyone would pay money to hear the preaching of God's word. It's sinful, it's wrong, it's ungodly, and I'm sick and tired of everyone supporting it. They go on to say, uh, it's important to reach all people, including celebrities with the gospel. Uh, But one of the pastors for Hillsong was known as the hipster, cool pastor to the celebrities. However, when a lead pastor seems to be enamored by celebrity culture, now they're talking about the celebrity culture of the world. So the church should not be focusing on the celebrity culture. Don't focus on the celebrities out there. I'm worried about the celebrities we build within Christendom. All right. um, There we go. Uh, they, they, They conclude this way. My prayer is that all the thousands of sincere Christ followers, including some of the leaders in Hillsong, will have wisdom from God as it relates to continuing the Hillsong movement and redeeming their witness for Christ. Sadly, just as Mars Hill collapsed and everything associated with it kind of collapsed and any hope to saving everything basically fell apart, I have a feeling the Hillsong is just going to end up on the trash heap of church history of another thing that rose to prominence and come crashing down because of man's ungodliness and sin. And I'm no better than any of them. I'll make it very clear. I am not better. I'm no better than anyone that's ever preached at Hillsong. I am, I'm a sinner just like all of them. I'm a failure like all of them. I'm not here to condemn them. I'm here to condemn us all because we're all, we're all sinners. It's sad. But this is the way it goes in church history. Over and over and over and over and over again. And it's never going to stop. 
the best, quote-unquote, movements in the history of the church have always been tainted, always been polluted by sin. The best of any Christian is corrupted and polluted by sin. Look at Hebrews 11 at the heroes of the faith. Hebrews 11 doesn't mention their sinful actions. Go read their full life accounts in the Old Testament. There's sin and there's moral failure over and over and over and over and over again. Christians are just broken people trying to figure this out together. We're not better than anyone. We're not sinless. We, we, we sometimes don't even sin less. We are morally messed up. We are ungodly. We are preoccupied with the things of the world. We love the world. We don't love God. We don't love others. Time and time again, this is just the truth that's there. We should strive and get against it and fight against it. And we try to help each other, but it's the reality. It's the reality. It's the reality. And you you hear stories about people who work for ministries and you'll hear stories and be like, why? I've heard people just work at, at Christian bookstores or Christian radio stations or Christian ministries and you'll hear the stories. It's like backstabbing and gossip and lying and cheating and sin and sin and sin and sin. Not all of it becomes great public scandal, but you hear the stories and you're just like, man, what in the world? You hear what goes on within churches. They don't always become public scandal, but they're sin. Some people get away with it, but it's still there. Someone knows about it. Email me your thoughts. Newsif at yahoo.com. Newsif at yahoo.com. That's newsif at yahoo.com. Those on uh, YouTube, feel free to post your comments. Nobody said anything in the chat, so either nobody is listening or nobody had anything to say or or they all strongly disagreed with all of my points. So there you go. Uh, pray. Beg God. Have mercy. He'll extend his mercy and his grace to everyone involved in Hillsong. Yes. Anyone who, first of all, they got to just mercy and grace that they can recover from all of the failure, moral failure and sin and all of that. And then pray, obviously, I, you know, I would want them to drastically change their theological position, but they're still human beings. And just because I disagree with them theologically, I don't want to see anyone's lives just utterly destroyed. I mean, it's just horrible. I don't want to seem to be kicked weathered down and sped upon. I, I don't even know what else to say. Just a horrible situation. All right. Thank you for listening. Everyone have a great evening. God bless.